welcome to Welcome to this episode of Lifting the Veil on Mental Health. Sean Newell, Laura Books, licensed professional counselor, Laura Books. How are you doing today, Laura? I'm good, Sean. Great to be here. Excellent. Well, as you heard in the first episode at the end of it, after we talked to uh, your friend Jimmy, who is a uh, therapist and knows all kinds of tricks and all of that stuff on how to help people out, which was awesome, um, we today are going to talk about childhood trauma on this second episode of Lifting the Veil on Mental Health. And um, we're going to talk to Carol Myrna and Sarah Runyon from the Center for Prevention of Abuse coming up about from the Safe from the Start program that helps out kids ages birth to five years old and then beyond that if they still need help after they've uh, after they've turned five and they're already in therapy but we'll get to that coming up in just a little bit first off saw this really interesting article this morning on the washington post and it was talking about ghosting and how people especially you know and we talked a little bit last week about about electronics and how they fit into today's world and how people are way overstimulated with electronics with laptops and cell phones and tablets and you name it. There's just always something, you know, streaming services, whatever you want to say. But anyway, the study in the Washington Post that basically talks about how people that don't receive messages back on, I don't know, whatever, an email, a chat, or whatever you want to say, a text message, it's really starting to take its toll on people's mental health when that happens. Well, and it goes beyond that too. It's part of how younger generation if i could say so communicate it it isn't i think i think i feel the need to finish a conversation is just part of maybe my experience in life but this is part of the communication like ghosting someone is the message i guess you mean like how much they did in block that's like people are like uh just don't respond and they block isn't a big thing is like unfriending people on like messenger chats and stuff like that just to prove the point that I don't want to talk to you anymore just to like dig that knife in to the most best ability. Well, but then they have to talk to them. So then they have to like unblock them and then send a message and then they'll reblock them again. That's <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But it, but it really is taking its toll on people because they sit and they wait for, for a message to come in that's not going to come in. And it's, it, it drives, it, it really does not do well for people, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Well, there's something unfinished, right? There's an anticipation there or there, anytime you, depending on the communication, there's a vulnerability anytime you reach out to somebody else, right? And then to be met with, with silence puts you in this state of, of, I don't know, waiting, longing, uncertainty. And then you start, what happens in your mind? Questioning, well, what did I say? How did they perceive that? Why aren't they responding? Um, the other part to this too that I've noticed is the ability to see if somebody's read your message is very important now too. So, and on top of that, you can see, well, they read my message, but they didn't respond and they, or they've left me unread is something I hear all the time now, which means they didn't read it. And so there's this whole part where they didn't even take the time to read my message, or if they did read it, why haven't they responded? And then I don't know how long, I don't know what the right amount of time is to where you decide, oh, they're ghosting me. They're not gonna respond. <laughs> Their response is no response. I'd say anywhere from 10 minutes to two days or something like that. Cause people get kind of PO'd if it's like minutes sometimes if they're, you know, it's, yeah. it's very strange. 
It's instant. It, expect, the, you expect that instant, right? The, the survey, some students admitted, because this was 18 to 29-year-olds that they mainly okay. surveyed. So some students admitted they, they ghosted because they lacked the necessary communication skills to have an open and honest conversation. And it didn't matter if it was face-to-face or via text or email. Mm-hmm. That, that's why they ghosted. So they ghosted out of fear, but people think they ghosted out of, you don't like me anymore. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It's 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 a it's an interesting psychological game. A nineteen year old in the a nineteen year old woman in the thing said, "I'm not good at communicating with people in person, so I definitely cannot do it through typing or anything like that." A twenty two year old said, "I do not have the confidence to tell them that, or I guess it would become, or it would be because of social anxiety." Uh huh. But then yeah. the problem is, is you're giving the other person social anxiety because you have social anxiety and don't want to say something to them out of fear. Then you're giving mm-hmm. the other person fear and anxiety. It's a, it's a nasty web. Yeah. There's no doubt about when it. Ne- neither one of those people are, it's not about the other person. Yeah. They're each about themselves, mm-hmm. but then they're taking it negatively mm-hmm. from the other in that situation. There are other reasons because of not liking a person. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the survey. I'd check it out on Washington Post, but but I thought that was the most interesting part that a lot of times it just had nothing to do with the other person at all and had everything to do with, with inner self. But there was like, I'm scared of that person or I don't like that person. There was a lot of other stuff in here too, but, but yeah, interesting nonetheless. Yes. So anyway, coming up, we're going to talk to Carol Myrna and Sarah Runyon, as I mentioned, and uh, say from the start, I mean, I would think, and you being a therapist, I'm sure you can shed some light on this. I would think that trying to, and they talk about this during the interview a little bit, trying to talk to children has to be one of the most difficult because they don't necessarily know how to communicate in a way like adults adults do when it comes to receiving therapy. Oh, Yeah. Uh, Sarah talks about their use of play therapy and I think did a great job explaining what that kind of looks like and how a child processes it processes that way, which I particularly liked um, that explanation. It, the, the age range on this program, the being zero to five just seems so young. And I am assuming it would seem so young to most people. And the thought is, oh, they're so young, children, you know, can bounce back easily. Um, zero to five, how much do you really remember from that time in your life? And so I was curious, Sean, uh, can you have a mem or do you remember any specific instances in your own life for when you were below the age of five? You mean like anything or you mean like something that was traumatic? Well, I have a feeling we might be both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what's why do you have a memory what's just give me a memory <laughs> uh i mean i can remember i can remember before i was in like kindergarten you know my uh my mom was a stay-at-home mom for a lot of that and i was at home i went to preschool and stuff like that but trauma wise you know and you remember it, it's funny because you don't really remember things you remember images of things i mm-hmm. think a lot of times but one thing i remember pretty vividly that was scary i don't know if it was traumatic as much as it was scary was i lived in a small town that had a grain elevator in it and grain elevator one day apparently built up too much dust and i lived just down the street from it and grain elevator exploded 
And I was at home and heard the explosion. And I still remember, you know, the emergency personnel rushing to the scene and the lights and the the, the big hole in the top of the elevator and all of that stuff. And and that was that that's something that, you know, I think I was like three years old when that happened. And I actually still remember images of that. Not not complete thought out memories, but but good um, but good images of all of that taking place and how scary that was. So you can access the feelings. I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how trauma, trauma memories show up for us in bits and pieces. They don't follow a logical timeline. You know, it comes in in, in a physical experience and, you know, how you felt, what you saw, those sensations and how you experienced them as a child. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense. So then, then the story can go on. So then same grain elevator, there's railroad tracks that run next to it. All right. Which makes sense because yeah. grain elevator dumps into the, you know, all that, all that stuff, how farming communities work. And one day around the same age, uh, train derailed on the tracks right down there, which was also not too far from my house. So then I was scared of trains for a couple of years after that because the train derailed and it also emergency personnel and all of that kind of stuff. So, so good times, you know, really, really fun to see all that. I'm surprised emergency personnel, um, didn't become a fear. Yeah, no, it didn't. I don't think so at least. So, so anyway, yeah. Yeah. How about you? Anything that you remember from, from a very, very young age like that? Well, I think really my earliest childhood memory was um, an accidental witnessing of a rabbit massacre. Okay. We, uh, we my family also from a small town, uh, lived on a farm and I guess dabbled in uh, rabbit raising or rabbit. I don't know what you call farming rabbits. I didn't look that up, but, <clears throat> um, you know, we were expected to play inside, which is something we never did as children. And I remember peeking out the window and witnessing, you know, my bunnies who were my pets, you know, being slaughtered for dinner. And I can remember every bit of that experience, (laughs) the confusion, the the sunny day, how the rabbit was strung up on the clothesline. Oh, that's Yeah. yeah. Did you eat the rabbit though? Uh, it was served for dinner. Yeah. Hmm. I don't think I ate it. Hmm. Yeah, I can remember the smell. Oh, the oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's awful. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. So, wow. Okay. Well, that's, that's definitely a memory not, an, or <laughs> well, a nightmare or something. I'm not sure which. Well, yeah. it's very vivid, very mm-hmm. traumatic. Yeah. And it yeah. counts. Yeah. And I have a, Below the age of five. It was before before school, before kindergarten. Okay. Okay. Well, it would have fit under, say, from the start then. There's no, no doubt about it. Because, I mean, you know, one thing that you'll learn about in this interview is it can be something that a kid saw on television, you know, that just, you know, trauma, mm-hmm. traumatized them. You know, there's a, there's a lot of different things. We'll let Sarah and Carol explain it more in depth. But, uh, but that's certainly an interesting story about, uh, about the rabbits, no doubt about it. So uh, strange small town you must have come from. Um, yeah. anyway, anyway, we'll talk to Carol and Sarah coming up after this break here on Lifting the Veil on Mental Health.
Well, now we are joined here on this part of this new podcast by Carol Myrna, the CEO of the Center for Prevention of Abuse, and Sarah Runyon, the clinical director. For those who don't know much about the Center for Prevention of Abuse, based in Peoria, Illinois, if you're listening to this podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. But we want to talk a little bit today about child trauma here on this first episode and and something that uh, you all deal with quite a bit. And Carol, if you want to talk a little bit about we're going to talk about safe from the start specifically, but there's a lot of different services that you offer where you deal with, um, with childhood therapy, correct? Absolutely. Um, Center for Prevention of Abuse is a pioneer in providing care for survivors of interpersonal violence um, throughout central Illinois. And that's a lot of core responsibilities, uh, but it starts with domestic violence and sexual assault and elder abuse and abuse of adults living with disabilities and human trafficking and prevention education. But a big part of that is the therapeutic services that we offer. And we have a 10 master's level therapist that um, do what I always say is the superheroes work um, because they hear some of the darkest side of abuse um, that we can possibly imagine. So being able to care for people of all ages is really important. Uh, When women and children, um, helping them live free from violence and abuse but um, taking care of the itty bitties, as we say, or the children is, is uh, paramount um, because we want to stop abuse before it starts. Uh, and if children experience it, we want to make sure that we help them process what's happened um, so that the toxic, toxic stressors that they've experienced um, don't adversely affect their whole lives. And with the Safe from the Start program going into that, it's it's a program that's not just in Peoria or not just under your umbrella, but does encompass the entire state. So can you talk a little bit about how that works and how you fit into that umbrella? Sure. So back in tw- uh, 2001, um, the program began and there are nine sites in Illinois. Most of them are focused around the Chicago metropolitan area. Um, so we're one of the main ones for downstate. But um, we knew that as uh our holistic approach continued to grow at that time, that making sure that we cared for um, the youngest among us was really important. And the Safe from the Start program is unique. It's funded by um, the Illinois Criminal Justice Information Authority in Illinois. And um, it allows us to do a couple of things. It allows us to initiate direct service or care for uh, children birth through five and their families. Um, But it also allows us to um, work as a community model. So uh, the nine sites regularly collaborate to make sure that uh, we're all at the uh, top of our game doing this work. But we also communicate well with the University of Illinois in Chicago that takes a lot of the information that we can provide uh, as a research element um, so that we're providing the best possible comprehensive care to take care of kids that experience um, these adverse um, experiences in their youngest years um, in a a variety of ways. It could be community violence, but it could also be um, family violence. And Sarah Runyon, clinical director at the Center for Prevention of Abuse, you kind of head this program, you kind of lead the effort here. Tell me a little bit about what that means when, when somebody comes to you or you're, you're um, tasked with helping a child out. What does that look like? I'm sure it's not a one-size-fits-all. Definitely not. Definitely not a one-size-fits-all. Um, I think, say, from the start, you know, it, it ties in perfectly to our mission, right? Because the goal is to prevent and reduce the impact of violence, um, family and community violence on young children. And so... 
Safe from the Start does that in a lot of ways that we don't recognize. Um, Safe from the Start's a program at the center, but it's also sort of a model. And so um, it's not just about when, when a family enters our services. Part of Safe from the Start is the fact that the model wants you to create a comprehensive system of care for kids. And that means they can show up at any point in the community, any entry point, um, and get those services and be tied back to us. And so we actually have one of the biggest coalitions of providers in the state on our calls. And we usually have about 60 providers in our coalition calls. And I know that's the big, one of the biggest in the state because we have that feedback from other Safe From The Start programs. Um, and so just having safe spaces in schools, um, having access to get the consents from DCFS, um, there's so many providers that are so important to us and that coalition um, just, it really enhances service delivery, quality and accessibility and it's amazing. But for an individual actually coming to therapy and accessing our services, um, you know, we do see children and families and so siblings and parents who are affected by that violence, although, you know, one of the kiddos needs to be from, you know, zero to five years old. Um, we do assessments that that basically measure the effect of the violence on the child, and then we introduce them to play therapy. And play therapy is amazing. It can be hard to explain to parents um, because you're going, you know, you're going in and you're playing like in a sand tray or something. But it really it's important because it refers more to a range of methods that capitalize on children's natural urge to explore and play. And then it harnesses it to meet the developmental needs and therapeutic needs of that kiddo. And so when a, when a child is too young or too traumatized to give like a verbal account of abuse or criminalization or some adverse experience or violence, play therapy is used to symbolically create those play scenarios that resemble those um, emotional experiences and provide that opportunity for a therapist and or a parent to provide some validation during that. And sometimes it's a matter of uh, reparative experience. And so you're correcting some of that behavior in session. Um, one of the other big components to that is just enhancing mom's ability to provide safety in that family, right? Because DV historically has been shown to occur disproportionately um, in families with kiddos under five. Um, and so it's just important because the maltreatment of kids goes along with the maltreatment of women. And so being able for, for mom to be able to provide that safety to, uh, to the kids as well is super important. Thanks, Sarah. Could you um, share with us some success stories from the program? Sure, sure. So um, we did have a, a mom who brought a kid, kiddo in and he was he was already in therapy. So I'll kind of give you what, what happened dur during therapy is that he started to um, demonstrate, but he was, you know, demonstrating choking on dolls and we're kind of like, Oh, so what's this about? Um, it wasn't the presenting issue when he came in. And so you, you kind of have to refocus on that. And mom was saying, you know, this is really important to me. Um, he was doing it at home with little brother. Uh, but we started to really focus in on that behavior because she was pregnant and having a baby, and she was afraid that he may start doing that to the baby who maybe would not be as willing as the little brother to be able to withstand that, even though he wasn't necessarily doing it aggressively, 
And so in play therapy, you kind of work through that and, and you repair some of those processes and, and teach kids how to, you know, when they're doing that, what might be more appropriate and how to self-regulate is super mm-hmm. important. And over time, you see that, um, you see that sort of like sense of understanding and empowerment in the kiddo when they start decreasing that behavior in an, and are able to really overcome those challenges. And so you know, sometimes say from the start and with kids comes in wins that look small, but not demonstrating choking behavior ever again. That is a success story, you know, definitely, definitely. especially as a kid is starting school, going into preschool, mm-hmm. having younger siblings. And so that's a, you know, that's a pretty good example of, of, of a tangible success and being able to reduce a, a, a violent behavior, basically, so- that was seen when he was really small. So, so say, you know, you're, you're going through this and this is for zero to five. And I know there's a little bit of wiggle room there, but Mm -hmm. say, say the child still needs therapy past the age of five or past where, where you think that safe from the start can do it. What do you do with those children at that point when they need to move on past your program? Uh, We keep seeing them, you know, if it's appropriate for us to continue that uh, therapeutic process, we definitely continue to see them. We are able to take siblings that are older than five. And sometimes we make exceptions for individuals that may have uh, developmental difficulties. And so they may be um, functioning more like a, between a four and six, seven-year-old level. And so we will take individuals a little older in that case as well. Um, but no, we try to stick with that therapeutic process as long as we feel like it's working and they're getting some benefit out of it. Um, but we are equipped to make a referral upstairs to our therapy department you know, in the case that we need, you know, we have some other therapists who are really good with working with certain aged kids and developmentally making sure that the services are developmentally appropriate. But yeah, we take, we take kids beyond the, beyond the five-year-old. So Carol, question for you really quick. A few years ago, the, um, obviously this program came under fire a little bit with state funding, not being, a, <laughs> not being a thing. And, and it was a tough decision at that point to say, we've got to figure out other ways to do these programs within the center, but you kept some portion of this going, even if the name wasn't necessarily what it was called, you didn't, you know, obviously turn your back on patients that needed it, but how important was it as soon as that funding got restored to bring this back to its full capacity again? I think this is a really good example of the ugly side of politics because it hurts those that are unseen. And that state budget impasse that happened um, between 2015 and 2017 for 736 days left a great deal of uncertainty for agencies, crucial high impact agencies like the Center for Prevention of Abuse. And one of the casualties, although it was brief, um, one of the casualties of that budget impasse in the state of Illinois was the Safe from the Start program. Um, And it didn't mean that we didn't um, provide care. We were able to transfer um, a number of the children that that qualified under domestic violence or sexual assault into um, our therapy programs that existed otherwise but it was the children that were affected by community violence. So maybe a shooting in the neighborhood or age inappropriate video games or movies, um, a fight that they were having nightmares about that did not qualify under domestic violence or sexual assault. So there was a hiatus um, for being able to care for those children, 
But as soon as the funding was able to resume, as soon as we could assure that um, we could well care for everyone that came to us for say from the start services, we resumed those services as as soon as possible. Um, it is part of our uh, holistic approach at the Center for Prevention of Abuse to make sure we care for every age group, every socioeconomic group, every gender, every profession, every culture, every race. Abuse doesn't discriminate. And I did not feel good um, about excluding, even though it may not be the largest portion of these children, but any child that um, is not receiving the care and stimulation from adults that value them. Um, my goodness, we need to be there to make sure that um, abuse casts a long shadow. Um, so we need to be there to do what we can as that wonderful human service organization to bring peace um, and to make sure that it sustains. You touched on something that I want to go back to a second for just a second. The the fact of violence in the media and having to have a child go through therapy because of that. How big of a part of the program is it? Because that's the one that I think a lot of people would go, well, well, it's just something that they see on TV. How, how traumatizing can that be for a child if they see the wrong thing on television or hear it on the radio or, or whatever the case might be? You know, one of the statistics that kind of keeps presenting itself is the fact that the violence um, and sexual harassment and cyberbullying is just becoming so big, you really just can't get away from it. And the impact on kids is, you don't always know what the impact is. It's, a, it's an invisible wound, right? So you're not always able to really assess what that looks like. And if your kiddo's not telling you that, then you really don't know. Um, and the impact could be, it depends on people's history, you know, if they, if they already have a traumatic, um, traumatic event that's happened in their life, that bullying is going to have a much more dramatic impact in their, in their current functioning. And so I think some things just to be aware, aware of it with kids specifically is sudden changes in sleeping habits, moods using drugs and alcohol, um, being withdrawn, being disruptive, aggressive. Um, so there are things to kind of look for with the cyberbullying and the online harassment, but it is a growing need. And it's something at the center that we have really, um, really been talking about um, and trying to promote awareness around because it is a really big issue. I, you know, brain development is a much bigger story than biology. Um, relationships matter and um, experiences matter. So it, it all has to do with forming um, brains and bodies and everything that a child goes through helps that either in a positive or negative way. So uh, we hopefully bring the positive to it. I think it's really important to also mention that uh, all the services that the Center for Prevention of Abuse provides to survivors are free of charge and always confidential. And sometimes that's a deterrent for people because they immediately think, oh, my goodness, how much is therapy going to cost me? Um, there is no cost. And it doesn't matter if the um, incident that's caused the need for therapy happened um, three years ago, 30 years ago or, or three days ago. Um, we're we're going to be we're going to believe you and we're going to be here for you. So important to know. 
So yeah. one one more question about safe from the start, and then I want to switch gears for just a for just a second. But um, with all that data that's collected, not only from the center but from around the state, how how useful has that been when you're when you're moving forward with trying to enhance the program and continue to grow it to help more children? I think um, it's been tremendously helpful. Anytime you can provide comprehensive, age appropriate, evidence based services. Um, I think the outcomes that you're going to see are going to be a lot more sure. Um, And then any improvements that we can make along the way. Uh, It's not always us. It might be a say from the start program in Chicago um, that's uh, done something that's become tried and true. And we don't need to reinvent the wheel. So being able to collaborate with others is is uh, overarchingly probably one of the more important aspects of this program. Speaking of supporting the Center for Prevention of Abuse and Safe from the Start and and all of the other services over there, how can how can people do that if they can't attend the race? Lots of different ways. Um, we encourage people to share our social media posts, um, share podcasts like this, um, other interviews that we do in the media to talk about our high impact human service um, performance that we provide every day, all day. 24 hours a day, every year. Um, we've been in existence for 50 years and we provide important community needs. And um, we wanna continue to do that. The services are needed now more than ever, especially as we're seeing the pandemic start to um, become an endemic. Hopefully um, we saw some very volatile, um, high numbers of abuse um, during the during the heart of the pandemic. And I think we're going to see the effects of that for years to come. So when people provide monetary support for the Center for Prevention of Abuse means the world to us. 91 cents of every dollar that we always raise goes directly to client care. We have a very small margin that goes to the administrative costs. We're very proud of that. But um, people can become volunteers. Um, word of mouth matters. And then there's a list of donation needs that people can always find on our website, be it food, um, clothing. Um, We serve people in a variety of ways when maybe somebody comes in the middle of the night um, fleeing a bad situation in their pajamas, Um, maybe a mother and and children, uh, people that present at the hospital for medical advocacies for sexual assault or domestic violence. And we have highly trained professionals that respond at the hospital um, to provide that immediate care. But we also take a change of clothes. Um, And that could mean, you know, new packages of underwear, um, sweats, scrubs, all sorts of things that people don't necessarily think about um, us being in need of. Diapers, formula, um, wide variety. We're an emergency shelter. So when people come to us, um, they're often in a very serious, desperate situation and our food pantries get depleted quickly uh, and other donations that we receive get put to use, really good use right away. We're a good investment. All right. And that website is centerforpreventionofabuse.org if you want to learn more about the stuff that uh, Sarah and Carol have been talking about here for the last 15 or 20 minutes. And I appreciate you both joining us. Sarah Runyon, Clinical Director, Carol Myrna, the CEO of the Center for Prevention of Abuse. And uh, we'll leave it there. And thank you so much for your time here today. 
Well, that was Carol Myrna, the CEO of the Center for Prevention of Abuse, and Sarah Runyon, their lead therapist um, over at the center. And we were talking, obviously, about the Safe from the Start program. And Carol, at the very end of that, talked about ways that you can help out the center. And there is another way. And that is right now they're doing their big duck race that they do each year where they take 30,000 rubber ducks and they race them down a giant water slide at Eastside Center in East Peoria. And that's coming up the last Saturday in August. And the winner, if the person has the duck that won, if you buy ducks, you can win, I think, $10,000 is the first prize and $5,000 is the second prize. But the big thing is, is you're helping people live free from violence and abuse and uh, helping them lead a more peaceful life in whatever area. You know, it could be those kids that we were just talking about, or it could be uh, somebody that was the victim of domestic violence or sexual assault or um, elder abuse. You know, there's so many different services that the center offers. When you Mm -hmm. talk about things like nonprofits and how they need to be more efficient. CFPA is actually one of the most efficient because there's several different things under one umbrella. So if you're interested in buying ducks, duckracepeoria.com is the place to do that. And I think that they've got about 10,000 ducks still left as of the time that we taped this. So uh, they're they're going fast and they're looking for another sellout again this year. So uh, once again, thanks to Carol and Sarah for uh, for helping out with that. Sounds like a great cause. A great opportunity to support an uh, organization that does a lot of good. So we've got two episodes down now, and we've got a whole bunch more to do and a whole bunch of more topics to touch on. You know, I mentioned in the first episode, the Young Minds Project with Unity Point Health. Want to get them to sit down and talk to us about that. But, uh, but Laura, you've got several topics that maybe we don't have a guest lined up for yet, but just uh, things that you want to make sure that we touch on while we do this podcast. One coming up that I think I have a good guest almost lined up is um, dig into music therapy and how um, that might be used and um, helpful to others. Uh, I know you're very interested in uh, generational trauma. Uh, Hopefully we'll have some more topics about that. Different treatment uh, modalities um, I think would be very interesting and, and helpful. Um, we've, we've mentioned several in the Jimmy interview that are a lot of letters, CBT, DBT, um, somatic <laughs> experiences. Like maybe we can tune in to find out what all that means. Yeah, we can, mm-hmm. we can start p- piecing that apart and, and helping people understand maybe what's out there, what to look for, maybe resonate with them or like, Oh, here's something and say, I think that would be really helpful for me. And then can, can then hopefully find a way to, to access that lots of topics so tune in and we're going to do these we're going to release these about once a month i think is uh what we're what we're trying to do these first two episodes will be released at the same time to be able to listen to them back to back but then after that we'll probably go you know monthly you know maybe maybe a little bit more than that who knows if there's good topics we'll see we'll see how it goes but we appreciate you listening to the first two episodes if you haven't listened to the first episode go back and listen to it so uh it's a good we, one. yeah we would ask you we would ask you to do that but we will talk to you next time here on lifting the veil on mental health